You're listening to WCOMLP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, well, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world better in tangible ways. And if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of sarcasm and also a bit of this, then welcome home. We're glad you're here. On today's show, we are going to be talking about uncertainty. But before we get to that, just a reminder, if you want to interact more with the show, you can find the Snarky Faith page on Facebook. You can drop me a line at Stuart at SnarkyFaith.com. That's S-T-U-A-R-T at SnarkyFaith.com. And if you want to leave a message that'll probably end up on the air, you can record it on our website, snarkyfaith.com. As we start the show, I wanted to give a quick shout out and, and recommendation for those of you that are listening. I was recently on two different podcasts that popped up last week. The first one of those was Fucked Up by Faith with Jude Mills, which is to show that from the title, you can surmise what the show's about. Yep. So it's me and Jude Mills really talking about how religion had messed me up and how I keep going. And then the second one is Daily Faithful Mindfulness with Dr. Justin Meyer that we had on the show a couple weeks back. I hopped on his podcast again, talk about why therapy is not a bad word. Even in regards to your Christian walk, it's actually something that we need and it's healthy. Yep. We can talk about Jesus and talk about therapy in the same breath, and it's okay. So yes, so check out those two podcasts, Fucked Up by Faith and Daily Faithful Mindfulness. Now, typically at the beginning of our shows, we like to go over what's happening in the news. And this week, we had plenty to talk about, plenty to talk about. We could have talked about all sorts of stuff, like how right? About how Ravi Zacharias Ministries spent nearly a million dollars suing one of Ravi Zacharias's abuse victims. Oh, we could have talked about that, or we could have even hopped into what is happening in Texas. Yes, where Governor Greg Abbott is calling on licensed professionals and members of the general public to report the parents of transgender minors to state authorities if it appears the minors are receiving gender-affirming medical care. Yeah, that's sick. But you know what? Florida said, I'll take that one. Hold my beer. Because also, recently, the Florida House has passed don't say gay bills and these stop woke bills. We may get to these in the coming weeks because they are an attack against LGBTQ youth and an affront to humanity and progress. But we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that this week because the only story that we really need to hop in on in the news is talking about what is happening in the Ukraine. Now, last week, we saw Russian forces be able to 
uh, break through the borders and try to capture several cities uh, in the Ukraine. And it is, for me, it is really, it, it was a hard week last week watching this and thinking of just the normal people living their normal lives and tanks are rolling down the streets. It's, it's, it's baffling to me to think of that being a current reality for children, civilians, and it's been a beautiful thing to see how the world has rallied around the Ukraine and, and how the Ukraine has rallied around the Ukraine in pushing Russia back. Now, the reason I even bring that up here, because, hey, we're talking about a show on faith, so why are we talking about the Ukraine? We're talking about the Ukraine because there is a huge religious component to why Putin is doing what he is doing. So we're going to hop through two different articles here as we talk to the news. One of those is from Religion News Services called A Religious Politician. The head of the U.S. Ukrainian Orthodox Church slams Moscow Patriarch uh, Kirill and Putin. Now we're going to talk about that, that article by Lou Nescott Jr. And we're going to be getting a little bit more from Diane Butler Bass in one of her articles entitled Next Year in Kiev. Because what Butler Bass wants to do here is begin to show us that this is all about religious nationalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So she, goes, she begins her article like this. While secular media tries to guess Vladimir Putin's motives in the Ukraine, one important aspect of the current situation has gone largely ignored. Religion. Yes. And that's the one thing that we're not really paying attention to because oftentimes we can think of this as just a land grab or Russia being Russia and wanting to take over more territory? No, no. So here's what begins to happen, okay? And Diane Butler-Bass puts it like this, okay? Until recently, it appeared that Vladimir Putin had successfully co-opted orthodoxy into his globalist triumvirate, making for a surprising love fest between American evangelicals and the Russian strongman. Just this week, former Secretary of State and stalwart Mike Pompeo praised Putin Outside observers might think that Putin was firmly in control of the future of orthodoxy vis-a-vis neo-Christendom. Except he wasn't. The Ukrainian Orthodox had other ideas. And that's the real problem. Because when it comes to Russian Orthodoxy, Kiev is essentially Jerusalem. Now she goes into a very lengthy, which is, I appreciate this, a very lengthy historical picture of what brought us here. I want to pull out the important parts that, that really speak to where we're at now. So the conflict in the Ukraine, as she puts it, is all about religion and what kind of orthodoxy will shape Eastern Europe and other orthodox communities around the world. Religion. This is a crusade, recapturing the holy land of Russian orthodoxy and defending the westernized heretics who do not bend the knee to Moscow's spiritual authority. Now, if you don't get that, you don't get it, she says. Who's going to control the geographical home, the Jerusalem of the Russian church, Moscow, Constantinople? And what does claiming the territory mean for orthodoxy around the world? Will global orthodoxy lean more towards pluralistic and open future, or will it be part of an authoritarian neo-Christendom triumvirate? We don't know how it's going to unfold, but the key point here Economic sanctions are unlikely to work if you believe your side is divinely sanctioned. And that's what Putin thinks he's got. The approval of God. 
Now, switching over to the Religion News Service, what they are doing here, what uh, Lou Nescott Jr. is doing, is he's actually interviewing the Archbishop Daniel, the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the USA. So these, these are all just from the end of last week. Okay, So what he is going to do here, I wanted to unpack some of his perspective on what is happening. So here's the question that was, that was asked of him. Many Americans would be surprised to learn Russia and Ukraine are predominantly self-identified Orthodox Christian countries. Would it be fair to characterize this as a religious war with Orthodox Christians killing Orthodox Christians? So the Archbishop answered by saying this, I think the president of the Russian Federation is making it a religious war. The responsibility is on him and his soul. Look, at, look major saints of the Slavic Orthodox Church, and I'm talking about Ukrainian Russian Orthodox Church and Serbian, what have you, a lot of them are of Ukrainian descent. So a lot, so this is my side note, so a lot of their saints are of Ukrainian descent. Back to the answer. The Ukraine has produced the fathers of the Orthodox Church that have served in Russia, Serbia, Moldova, Romania, and other parts of the world, including the Middle East and Jerusalem. Ukrainians have contributed to the fabric and to the mosaic of the spiritual entity of who we are as Orthodox Christians. We are, two distinct, we are two distinct groups of people, Russians and Ukrainians. We're people of one faith. We're Christians. But our cultural background makes us different. Because of the impact that Western societies had on the Ukraine, people, uh, the Western Ukraine, and in general in the Ukraine, are open to the whole idea of self-entities, identifying themselves as Christians and asking themselves a valid question. Why am I Christian? Why am I Orthodox? Why am I doing the ritual I'm doing? Why am I living the way I live? In the northern part, or the northern neighbor, the Russian Federation, they would often use teachings of the saints of the church to imply that you are not worthy of anything as a person, as a child of God, to accomplish anything in order to fulfill and truly approach him with your unworthiness. Two distinct approaches to the sanctity of human life. In many ways, you can kind of see this as, as almost a breakdown <laughs> of, of conservative and, and liberal ideology within, within religion that is happening in the Ukraine. And I, first of all, as we kind of dive into this, just my heart goes out for the Ukrainian people. This is really difficult to watch what is happening, and it's beautiful to see them rise up against it, but it's still very, very difficult to watch this happen especially when we see this as a war where we have Christians fighting Christians. Whoa, really? Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. And it hits my heart really hard because, wait, if we kind of go back to the words of Jesus, there's a whole lot of love that we talk about, a whole lot of love of neighbor, love of your enemies. And now we've got two countries at war. Now, Ukraine has done nothing wrong. Russia has provoked this all on their own. And I hope we will get a clear resolution to this soon. I'm hopeful, actually, of, of the way that the world has rallied around them. And I do think that Putin did not see this exactly unfolding the way he thought it would. With the way the world is so connected now, and the way that social media connects us and the internet connects us, it's really hard for these kind of atrocities to unfold without there being eyes watching or people being able to talk about what's happening. And it is a beautiful thing watching the Ukrainian people rise up against their oppressors. And when we see this, violent, this violence 
that's happening, it, it's, it continues to be a reminder of the world that we find ourselves living in. And it reminds me of the words of the mystic William Everson when he said, violence is the eruption of passivity into act in the material universe. It's a jostling of forms and unpredictableness of a chaotic world. The world is unified, but there is an edge of violence in it, which is the chaos. The evolution of new forms, the evolution of form from a lower to a higher state, these are all addressed in the problem of violence. Violence is the central problem in life. Look at Shakespeare, Milton, Dante, Homer, especially. Their work is saturated with violence. It's obsessed. It's the obsessional part of human life that is unsolvable, save through the religious dimension. I was preoccupied with Old Testament, Old Testament violence, the relation of violence to the sacred. Now, what he's getting at here is that there is a component to life <laughs> all over the world of violence. We see it all the time in different ways. I mentioned Texas and Florida, how they are enacting political violence against trans kids and the LGBT community at large. We see violence happening in different ways, more subtle ways too. We see violence happening in the church in the way that we talk about roles of hierarchy and roles of, hmm, are we complementarian here? Like, you know, hmm, do men have a job? Do women have a job? Are we egalitarian? How do we handle this? So we are a world that is entrenched in violence. And the goal of what we are trying to do, at least <laughs> when we dig deeper into the words of Christ, is be able to become those peacemakers, those peacemakers that are so desperately needed in this world. Now, in many ways, Everson was talking about this kind of being a, kind of a religious problem to be able to fix, and we see that religion is creating more problems here. But I do think it is, it is a problem of the heart. I think it is a problem of who we are as people and how we choose to exist in. And I believe that the ways that Jesus kind of taught us are that we are called to live differently. We're not called to live in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No, we're called to turn the other cheek. We are called to nonviolence. But you know who's not wrapped up in these ideas of Jesus and nonviolence? <laughs> yep. You know, the worst, the best of the worst, the choices cuts of the Christian knots. Oh, yes, that brings us to our special edition of <laughs> Christian Crazy Prophets and the Ukraine. Here we go. If loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. He know what I want. So in this edition of The Christian Crazy, we're going to look at, you know, those people that are always on the wrong side of history. Let's look into those MAGA pastors and prophets that are absolutely on the wrong side of history in regards to Russia and the Ukraine. Now, First off, first off, this is beautiful. It's so beautiful. This, this comes from a church service. Mm -hmm. A church service with Hank Kuhneman. Now, this took place on February the 16th. February the 16th, where Lance, as you'll listen here, Lance is going to be speaking the words of God throw in air quotes there, the words of God about what God is seeing that's really happening in the Ukraine. 
Now, this is not going to age well at all, and that's why I love it. I always love bringing receipts to the prophets because this, this is about as stupid as it gets when someone is trying to proclaim they're speaking the word of God. So, king of BS, Hank Kuhneman, what does God say? Do not believe the lies, for even over Ukraine, the media... Their mouth is filled, listen to me. The media, their mouth is filled with war rhetoric. And there are those who are pushing for war. And there are those who would desire to even make it look like that Russia has done something to the Ukrainian people inside of their borders to bring them to war. Yet I am and I have been speaking to the leader of the bear. I've been speaking to you, Putin, and you are listening. Therefore, watch. Do not be caught up in the war rhetoric the media is creating. Man, that was some interesting stuff what he said about uh, Russia. See, again, you got to get God's perspective because if you listen to the lamestream news, you're going to think, oh, we're on the verge of World War III. God said it's war, what do you call it? War, war rhetoric. You know what war rhetoric is? It's lying. They're lying about something. So we've really left here with two conclusions that can be drawn from the current situation that's happening. One, one, uh, that God was speaking to Hank Kuhneman and God was wrong. Or our second one, which is the easiest one, is that Hank Kuhneman is lying and he's absolutely full of shit like he always is. That one, that one seems a bit right. And now you may be asking yourself, hey, like, why? Like, what is, what is it with these MAGA pastors and prophets that, hmm, that absolutely loves Putin? It's kind of a weird thing, right? Right? Because even before, even before they started their incursion into the Ukraine, what did Franklin Graham offer? What did he do? He asked for all of us to pray for Putin. Didn't ask to pray for Biden. Didn't ask to pray for the Ukraine. He asked us to pray for Putin a week ago. Now, again, I'm not getting your answer yet, right? Why? Why? What is it with Putin? What is it that matters here to these weird sycophants of the faith? Well, I'll let Franklin Graham give you the answer in his own words. And this is from an interview that happened, it's been a little while back, but it's going to give you a very clear indicator into why he feels chummy with Putin. Gays and lesbians cannot have children. Uh, biologically, it's impossible. Right. They can adopt, but... <laughs> yeah, they can recruit. Recruit. Yeah, sure. What's the difference between recruit and adopt? Do you think? Well, I think you, you can re, re, you can uh, you can adopt uh, a child into a marriage, but you can also recruit uh, children into your cause. And so I, I I believe in protecting children, okay, from exploitation, all exploitations. 
-hmm. So that's 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 all that is about. I think I agreed with Putin. I think protecting his nation's children, I think, was probably a pretty smart thing to do. I was very clear I supported uh, Putin uh, in his decision to protect his nation's children. And I think our Congress needs to do more in protecting our nation's children. So what's interesting here hmm, is that folks like Franklin Graham have found a friend in Putin because he apparently hates the same people that Franklin Graham hates, right? I mean, they call that traditional family values, but really it's just an excuse to be able to hate people that are different than them. Ah, so yes, let's look to Russia as <laughs> the vast land of opportunity where God is doing great work through an authoritarian regime. Beautiful, beautiful work here, but that is kind of what we also see here, what conservatives are trying to push through here. And they're just mad that they can't do it like an authoritarian can. Franklin Graham is a disgusting human being on so, so, so many levels. But even, even the gall for him to talk about adoption. Adoption for children into LGBTQ families. This is what gets me the most. Because his answer is, well, we don't want them going to those families who, quote, recruit them. No, we would rather them stay in the system. We would rather them stay in the system without any care or any love. Yes, because we are the party of pro-life. Woohoo! Yeah! We, we only love the people that we want to love. Our neighbors, our enemies, ah, screw them. Screw them. Really kind of what American Christianity has become like these days. Yep. Yes. Now, our next clip is going to come from Lauren Witzik, who is actually running for the Senate in Delaware, right? And the beautiful thing that she lays out here is she kind of says the quiet parts out loud in regards to Christian nationalism. So Lauren, <laughs> tell us, tell us why we should be terrified that you're trying to get elected into office. <laughs> tell us why we're terrified. Here's the deal also, you know, Russia is uh, a Christian nationalist nation. They're actually Orthodox Christian. I'm mm. Russian Orthodox. So, you know, I actually support Putin's right to protect his people and always put his people first, but also protect their Christian values. I identify more with Russian, uh, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Uh, so, you know, like there is that you know, that there, there is that there. And, you know, Christian nationalist countries also are a threat to the global uh, regime. Like the Luciferian regime, it wants to mash everything together. But Putin takes care of his people. He looks out for his people. I watched as he deported, like they literally walked them through the streets, the criminal illegals who were coming into their country. Yeah. They walked them out and they escorted them out and they said, get out. You know, I can respect that. I can respect that. And I can respect the fact that uh, Putin does everything he can to protect uh, his people. And here is where it begins to get insidious, right? When we begin to frame this, oh, they're just a Christian nation. He's just protecting people. He just wants Christian values. The only example I can think of in this is where he turned away the refugee and the stranger. He made them walk out just like Jesus told us to. Wait, Jesus didn't tell us to do that. Jesus told us quite the opposite. So what? What is she talking about? Oh, this is kind of the like wet dream of Christian conservatives is kind of like having a theocracy 
where we're doing everything to be as Christian as possible. I mean, look at those Christian Russians as they shoot the Ukrainian people. They're just shooting them with the truth of God's love. Ah, and when you watch them bleed, it's just it's just wonderful to see how much Putin is showing his Christ-like love for all people because they're a Christian nation, right? Right? No. That's sick. It's sick. It's sick. It's sick. And again, nothing to do with Christianity. None. None of this. None of this. All of this that, oh, look at Putin. He's doing such great things for his people. So let us take a moment. Let us take a moment in in basking in his Putin's Christianish, right? How, how much he embodies Jesus. Because, you know, Putin's known for imprisoning dissenters. Remember that time? Yeah. Murdering his enemies? Ooh, that's fun. Occupying foreign territory? Oh, quashing opposition? <laughs> Abetting some of the world's worst bloodshed? This, this definitely, this definitely sounds nothing like Jesus. But these Christian nationalists, they love it because authoritarianism is their way to force you to live in a way that makes them feel comfortable. That sounds right. Aww. What a wonderful world they like to envision. So the last of the Christian crazy human stains, that honor, that honor goes to Lance Wallenau. Now, Lance is going to give you a bunch of reasons why. What? What? Putin's good? Huh? 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 Oh, this is just a cover-up for things? Really, Lance? Really, Lance? Tell me, how do you eat your breakfast every morning with conspiracy O's? I think you do. I think you do. You want a clear villain in this story? It's hard to make Putin the villain if you have all the facts. Because the CIA and Hillary Clinton tried to invade Russia to undercut Putin to bring the LGBT doctrine in. They had activists there. Putin locked it down, kicked them out, and clamped down like a good dictator does. Like a good dictator does. I mean, that is a beautiful line of sarcasm. Oh, wait, but Lance doesn't mean it that way. He means that Putin is acting as a good dictator, as good dictators should. Oh, God. Well, all of that insanity brings us to having our main conversation point today. If anybody wants a little extra Christian crazy, if you're listening to this off of the radio and on podcasts, I may just throw you in a little bonus at the end, 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 end of everything. So fingers crossed, if you're good, it'll be there. If it's not, just like Santa. Uh-huh. We know if you've been naughty or nice. So you'll have to see. You'll have to see. But our main conversation that we've been walking through for the past two weeks, we started it last week, uh, and we are going through uh, kind of a modified talk where I am squishing together these two different books. Uh, first one, Gifts of the Darkwood by Eric. Eric Elms, and Spiritual Theology by uh, Diogenes Allen. And this week, uh, we are going to be diving into this idea of uncertainty and what it's like to live a faithful life that still embraces uncertainty. And especially, especially as we've seen what's been going on in the Ukraine 
for the past week and a half that life is precious, life is very uncertain. And because of it, because of that uncertainty in life, we have to learn how to embrace things and walk towards them. Now this week, um, two things, I had these two different things that happened to me that, that this kind of thought kept coming to my mind. So uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll unpack this a bit. So this was probably several days ago. And my daughter was cooking in the kitchen and dropped one of our mixing bowls on the ground. Shattered. Beautifully shattered. Which is funny. Sometimes they just have to hit right on the ground to shatter. And boy, did this ever shatter. And I'd cleaned it up. Even put on our little Roomba to clean up the mess. And I thought all was good. And I was walking around later at night barefoot. And I felt something in my foot. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I found a piece of glass. And I thought I got it out. And then what I noticed for the next couple of days, every time I would step down just in a specifically certain way, I would feel that pain again. And, and what I had to do was I had to go back, look in there, and dig out this tiny, 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 this, like, this almost like grain of sand piece of, <laughs> of glass that was in my foot. And then I had another occurrence. Uh, actually, same daughter. This is kind of interesting. I didn't put those two together. Uh, my youngest daughter is, is absolutely wonderful, and I love the relationship that we have. And so she was coming home uh, from her friend's house, and uh, she's like, all right, I'll be home in a little bit. I was like, all right, uh, surprise me with something. I was joking. And then she returns home about 20 minutes later. <laughs> in her hand, she had gone, and there was like an empty, an old like abandoned house on a lot, and she came home with a large cactus that she had dug up in her hands and uh and what had happened was i was like oh my gosh how did you get it home and she's like ah it wasn't too bad and so i put on gloves to be able to move it but unbeknownst to me there's on on this particular cactus there's the large there's the large tines that stick out and then there's the small ones that that you tend to not notice as much and so i thought i was being great by putting on my gardening gloves to be able to to grab it and to carry it but again, unbeknownst to me, several days later, put back on those garden gloves. And again, I get these little things in my hand. Like so, so, so tiny, so tiny. I've got to get really like bright light to be able to pick these things out. And between the glass and between just the cacti, it was reminding me of this thing is that the little things in life matter more than we oftentimes give them the credit for. And when we, through this conversation that we're having through these two books, it's a lot of this is engaging about what does the spiritual life look like? What does it mean to follow after and to know God? Uh, last week, we, uh, I think I pulled out a quote is from Peter Rollins that talked about really the path of, of the Christian is one of becoming. It's not one of arrival, it's one of becoming, that we are constantly in this flux of becoming who we need to be. And, and in that walk and, and, and in the way that we grow with faith, the little things are the things that we can't ignore. Now, working in, in, in church ministry and nonprofit Christian ministry for the past 20 years or so, one of the things I always found interesting um, about people, and this is something that I don't know if it's something that the church has done to get into our heads, 
but I would have people come up and, oh, I, I was praying, praying, and, and God told me he wanted to start up a new ministry. God wanted me to start up a brand new ministry. And, and I've heard this. I've heard this from people, even like my, my mother-in-law, which I probably shouldn't mention, but I did, and I'm going to keep going. But folks like that that just want to pray for a ministry, and, and I've heard people wanting this, like they want to somehow pray to be something big in God's kingdom. And usually when we say to have a ministry, that it means it meaning something like, oh, this is mine. This is me. The Lord has anointed me to do these things. But much, 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 much of, of what we've talked about over the last many weeks, our, our series we talked about before about the Sermon on the Mount and, and what Christ is getting at, it comes down to living out the ways of Jesus in the ordinariness in the day-to-dayness as we move through our lives. Sometimes people are always looking for the next big thing, but sometimes it's the next small thing that is really closer to what God's heart looks like. And, and we're going to be embracing this, this call to uncertainty because that is something that oftentimes we try to push away, we try to get rid of, because we don't want it. Uncertainty makes us feel very, very uncomfortable, doesn't it? It makes me feel uncomfortable if I don't know what's going to happen. I'm pretty sure you feel the same way. We don't oftentimes deal well with uncertainty. And Eric Allens puts it very, very well when he says it like this. He says, religion does a disservice when it seeks to remove uncertainty from life. Have you ever noticed how the more how, how the more certain a religion claims to deliver, the more frenzied and hysterical are its adherents. The fact of the matter is that life is messy, and no amount of doctrine or dogma changes this. Faith built upon certainty is a house of cards that falls apart when the unshakable foundation shifts even slightly. Have you been in those situations? I can think of this. And, and uh, as I was, I was talking with some friends, it was a week ago, we were talking about this idea of, of uncertainty and, and what it looks like to walk it out. And this group of friends also happens to be a bunch of pastors and ex-pastors <laughs> that I like talking to. And, and we were coming up with these ideas, like, what would happen? What would happen if churches embraced uncertainty? Well, they would look a lot different than they do now. Because really, what we've seen, if anyone has really experienced any kind of main denominational service, uh, they, the service itself, it provides you a certainty. Certainty that you're going to get worship music, certainty that you're going to have to give money, certainty that you're going to get a message that is going to tell you about certainty and about how certain things are. Now, we are, can be certain that we know that God has made us in God's own image and that God loves us and that we are called to love others, including our enemies. But beyond that, that really promised a ton of certainty. And as you look over church history, we can try to see what values pushed the church, like the, the institutional church forward. Well, growth by numbers and or power. That was kind of the idea, right? That's the metrics we have. If a church is doing well, it's growing, or how, how are we flexing our power in the community around us? And all the time, what's happened within that is we have ended up consolidating theology. 
which is another word of really saying that we've learned ways to be able to put God in a box. Though the deeper we dig into this whole uncertainty of God, we need to realize that on some level that God is beyond conception, right? That God is beyond us and beyond our full conception that we can understand elements of God. We can experience God in these ways. We can experience God through walking out the ways of Christ. We can do it in these type of ways, but, but, but. God ultimately is beyond our conception. So if we want to be people that are following the lives of faith, walking after the ways of God, we're going to have to be able to embrace uncertainty. And and if we think about this, Let's think about this in light of 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror, dimly. But then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. What is Paul getting at here? Paul is getting at here this idea of things being dimly lit, that, 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 that the end is not seen yet, that we don't know where everything is completely going in this, right? He's speaking to this as a mystery, that there is a mysterious nature to God, there's a mysterious nature to life, and it's not necessarily a problem that is there to be solved. It's not. It's not at all. And in his book, Gifts of the Dark Wood, Eric Elms uh, is quoting John, author John Ortberg when he says this. He says, we all want certainty, but we don't. We all think we want certainty, but we don't. We, what we really want is trust, wisely placed. And then Elms comments on that. The greatest way to kill love is to take the adventure out of it. And that really got me thinking. I have been married <laughs> for over half of my adult life. And the person that I married is not the person I'm married to now. Now, I don't mean that I've been divorced and gotten remarried. No, it just means that over that time, my wife has grown, my wife has changed, as have I. Like, the, the self that I was when I first got married is probably not compatible to my wife these days, right? He was young, he was foolish, he didn't know what he was doing. But, but, the way that we see love transform is the fact, is the fact that there is this air to of mystery to it, that there is this becoming, there is this developing. And that's, that is in it for us. And that's, that's what we are called to be doing. So often do we learn in, in, we learn this through watching of practices and certain traditions and, and, and learning certain dogma. We begin to learn to put God in a small box, to make God not a mystery. But if you try to steal the mystery out of God, you really don't have God anymore. You tracking? You got me here? So let's, let's read deeper into a story where Jesus was encountering a dude that really did not want to change. And I always love it in these stories where Jesus tries to just completely flip the known ideas on their heads to be able to prove a point. So this comes from John 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one uh, of the Jewish festivals. Now, now there is in Jerusalem 
near the Sheep's Gate, a pool, in which Aramaic is called Bethsaida, which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for over 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And the Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. Once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, to unpack this story a little deeper, what they believed at this time was that there was a pool there that certain time of day could be down in the waters, it could lead towards your healing. And we have this other guy. He has really been there sitting near it for 38 years. He sits near it because he's got a spot because that's what he does. He's a panhandler. That's the only way that he can make his living. And he doesn't want to give up a spot to be able to risk it to go into this pool to get well. So what he has done, he has created here this, this certainty. He said, I can't get healed. This is the best I can do. I'm just going to plant myself here, and not move. This is my spot. But where was the direction for healing? Where was the direction he needed to go in? Not where he's sitting. He needed to be going somewhere else. And Jesus, hearing this, just offers to him, sure, there you go, you're healed. And I feel like in, in many ways, this, is the, this speaks to the mysterious ways of Jesus. Oftentimes we get in our heads, this is the way God is. This is the way the world is. This is how it's going to be. Things aren't going to change. I've lived it. I've been there. I've done it. I've bought the t-shirt, right? We've done this. And especially like when you begin to get older in life, you begin to say, well, I have seen that before. Uh, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. So the road to change and growth along our spiritual journeys is going to require embracing uncertainty, and that is going to lead us away from places that we feel are safe, are known, and it's only in those places that leads us into new things, leads us into new experiences, leads us into meeting new people, leads us into experiencing God in different ways. It leads us to go somewhere else, but if we remain, if we remain where we're at, nothing is going to happen. Because that is what certainty gives us. We know it's going to happen. It's going to be the same. And we can keep sitting here and not moving. And thinking on this story, it, it reminded me of something, especially now that it's starting to... <laughs> what is it? We're, we're at the end of February, <laughs> about to step into March now. And we've had 70 degrees here in North Carolina. It's beautiful. We've had beautiful early spring weather. Now, the house I live in, is was built in the 1950s. That's my house. And we've lived here for about nine years. And for those first nine years, they had the original windows in the house. Now, these original windows looked all right. They didn't really do much of good <laughs> for keeping the house well insulated. But what was even worse about them is in most rooms over the years, people have painted them many times and they've painted them all shut. And we have tried to get them open, but they're old windows, and 
we knew that <laughs> if I've tried too hard, I'm probably going to break the window, which gives us a larger problem. But over this last summer, we were able to finally replace all the windows in our house. And now as the weather gets warmer, I cannot describe the difference of literal fresh air that we get. Because before, we were stuck, we were glued down, those windows weren't going anywhere. But now, we're able to experience newness, freshness, new air. Now, sliding over to spiritual theogony, uh, <laughs> spiritual theology by Diogenes, Alan, mixing up those words there, spiritual theology by Diogenes, Alan, uh, we've been kind of walking through this, this kind of paralleling this idea of this path. What does this path look like? Well, uh, last week we had talked about the different levels of kind of how we begin to understand things and grow. And this week, what we're going to be doing is talking about the journey and the goal. So it's huge for us if we're talking about spirituality and growing in the knowledge of God that there is a journey and a growth aspect to it. It's not simply, well, I know where I'm going. When I die, I'm going to heaven, not like all you other sinners who were going to hell. That's not the goal we're talking about here. That's not the goal we're talking about here at all. So when speaking about the goal, Diogenes Allen puts it like this. The two great the two great commandments are a standard by which we can measure our lives and a promise that through grace we will become the people who love fully. The overriding aim of our lives is to obey God by loving God and our neighbor. We do not always love as we should, but we are promised that with God's spirit at work in us, we will be able to love more and more. The task of the spiritual life is to obey the two great commandments perfectly so that our life so that our will becomes one with God's will. The union of our will and God's will fulfills Jesus' prayer. And Christ said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is, it's, I don't want this, the simplicity of this to, like, to, 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 to be lost here. Because there is a simplicity towards what he is saying here that the ultimate goal in life is about loving and growing in knowledge of God and loving <laughs> your neighbor. That's it. But through those acts, through those acts, it will begin to change and transform us. Now, too often we've seen stuff where loving our neighbor means sharing the gospel with them, right? Where we go and tell them that they're sinners and going to hell. But that's not what we're talking about here. We talk about loving others. The act of love says, what does that person actually need? Not what I think they need, but what do they actually need in a given situation? Do they need a friend? Do they need help? Do they need someone to be there for them? I don't know. But the answers to these types of questions begin to become unlocked as we move and we practice out these two different facets of love. And we have to remember we have to remember that love doesn't merely connect us to the here and now. It also connects us to the hereafter. And it's there in that weird, weird mixture <laughs> of spirituality, divinity, humanity, reality that we find ourselves in. And, and being able to love in a way 
we don't know where it's going to take us, where we don't know where it's going to lead us, is exciting, it's scary, but it's merely what we're also called to do. And I wanted to pepper in this idea because I think sometimes we get so caught up in this idea of following the path of faith and following the ways of Jesus, and they end up making us look like a certain thing or practice a certain way, and it's actually not that at all. Uh, it's actually opening us up to be able to see God through our own unique perspective and lenses, to be able to love people in the way that we were created to be, and through our own talents and gifts. So it becomes something that is more, instead of it being mysterious, I feel like it's almost like living with anticipation or living with excitement for something that's about to happen. And and I, I want to quote this too. This is back from Di uh, Diogenes Allen too. When he's, he's, he's speaking about this, and I think this kind of taste, this dips into the taste of life that we need to be about more. And he said, he said, I, I recall a clergyman once telling me after a wonderful concert that for the first time in his life, he realized that by enjoying the beauty of the music, he was obeying God. Well, before that experience, obedience had always been associated with unpleasant tasks for him. We are still learning how many more possibilities there are for living a Christian life. Any way that we can improve and enrich human life is living the Christian life. And every way in which we enjoy and appreciate what is good and beautiful can be an act of obedience. And I fear too often when we talk about paths in this way that we assume obedience means I am going to go be a nun or a pastor or a missionary or all of those things. But actually, it's really about you showing up where you're at in life and being the one that offers that different perspective, that loves differently, that reaches out in kindness in a way that this world doesn't oftentimes show kindness. So my point here is that we are moving, that we are changing, and we can either fight it and embrace certainty and leave life the way it is now, or we can open ourselves up to newness. We can open ourselves up to what does it look like if I really begin to realize that God loves me? What does it look like if I really start showing kindness and love towards my neighbor? Because I think it's in those areas we begin to see the beauty of this tradition unfolding, the beauty of, of the ways of Christ unfolding and, and changing us. Because the way you're going to walk this out may be different than the way I'm, I'm going to walk it out. And that's okay. We're not called to be homogenous, but we are called to be human. And we are called to be awake. And we are called to be aware of what is happening in the world around us. Christ was very awake towards the problems of the times. And he spoke to them. And he was very awake and aware to who was being marginalized, who was being oppressed at the time. He was awake and aware of that, just like we are now. And when we see those areas where people are being marginalized and hurt and they are being shown no love and compassion, in many ways, <laughs> people may be shown the love of Jesus in a way that doesn't seem very loving. Yeah, yeah. You know those times where people that Christians like to say, oh, I'm loving you. I'm speaking the love in truth, my truth and love to you. 
but it really kind of feels like hate and anger and nastiness because there are better ways forward. There are better ways forward, but it's going to require us embracing uncertainty, not knowing where it's going to go, but it's doing the right thing that we're called to in the place that we're at. So the last thought I wanted to leave you with today came from a really weird, obscure source. But I think that it's going to echo a lot of what we've talked about. And this isn't even necessarily a Christian source. Now, I, I don't know where I found this quote, but it's a good one. Now, this came from an, what is this? This came from an article entitled A Manifesto in the New York Review of Books back from October 18th, 1973. Written by Lucien Bianco, Jean, uh, Jean-Paul Brisson, and Jacques Brunschwig. Okay, yes, I'm butchering their names, but that's not the point. But I want you to listen to this through the eyes, and I'm, for context, I do think a lot of this comes from a secular source, but I think it is so beautiful in, in what they are calling us to do in this. So this is kind of the end, I believe, of their manifesto. And it goes like this. The first duty of the intellectual, in whatever part of the world he may be, or whatever camp he may be committed, is to speak truth, or at least what he humbly believes to be the truth. He must do this without messianic pride, independently of all authority, and, if need be, in opposition to it, whatever it may represent, independently, too, of all orthodoxy, all conformity, all demagoguery. And at no moment should intellectuals move from criticism to apologetics. There is no individual or collective Caesar who deserves universal support. The ideally just society is not a society that is devoid of conflict. There is no end to history, but one in which the contestants, when they come to power, in their turn may be contested. A society in which criticism is free and sovereign and there is no need for apologetics. And what grabbed me about this was that there's a whole different Christian thought process around apologetics, which is about being able to counter people that speak out against the faith. But it's always been something that I found really kind of funny and interesting because I'm kind of like, why are you defending God? Because if God is God, why does God need to be defended? Because a God that needs to be defended doesn't really sound much like a God anymore. But I think in so many ways that we can apply this to where we're moving and towards the goal that we're talking about here is to act justly, speak truthfully, and realize that where we're at right now is not where we're headed. And that's okay. And it's in those times where we're able to see this scary at times, uh, apprehensive, but also exciting journey into mystery where we begin to realize that uncertainty is one of our traveling friends. Now, I'm not saying that embracing uncertainty is easy, but that's why we all have each other. That's why we have friends. That's why we have community. That's why we surround ourselves with people that are hopefully trying to make this world a better place just as we are. Through loving God, through loving others, and stepping into places not really knowing how God's going to show up or how our efforts are going to impact those around us. But we do it 
because we believe it's right, because we want to make this world a better place. That's all I've got this hour. Just a reminder that as we end this broadcast, you can catch this show and past shows on podcasts at www.snarkyfaith.com. And as I do every week, I send you out with the holiest amounts of grace and peace and snark. I'm out of here. Catch you guys again next week. Peace be with you. Well, all right, boys and girls, you must have been one of the kids on the nice list because your podcast came to you with bonus Christian crazy, not even bonus Christian crazy, the bonusy of most bonuses of Christian crazy, the worst of the worst, the Christian cringe of the week. Christian cringe. No! So the cringiest of the cringe is oftentimes when the prophets unprofit themselves. Kind of where, where they stood emphatically on this one place, and then they somehow casually forgot about all of those things that they emphatically said they believe in. So I'm going to play these two clips. This is Pastor Prophet, Kurt Landry. Now. I'm going to play these in reverse order. No, we're not going to be backmasking them, playing them zoom, 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 backwards. No, not that. I'm going to play the 2022 Kurt Landry, who is going to be whining and bitching and moaning about cancel culture and the prophets. Okay? The funny part is, Kurt is going to talk about what happened to all these prophets that were wrong but he's going to do something that kind of makes himself seem like he's not part of that. Like, he really wasn't part of that whole thing. So let you listen to 2022 Kurt Landry, and then we'll listen to what he said in January of 2021. The church's cancel culture has really created, it has blossomed into really a global cancel culture. And I'm gonna share with you that I really think that since the 2020 election, the body of Christ has canceled its profits based on the fact that President Trump did not serve a second term. And when that did not serve a second term, there was like this evil accusing of the brethren spirit that rose up and particularly in the church and said, this prophet predicted that. There's a false prophet. We maybe didn't stone anybody with rocks, but we certainly stoned them on social media with our own mouth. So here we are canceling the prophets. I'm not here to defend that whole situation about how it went down, but I will say this, that the scripture says, about this in Psalm 105:15, it clearly says, do not touch my anointed ones, no, do my prophets no harm. So when they did miss it and we did harm to them, thus we fed into that river of the cancel culture where we attacked our own. We need to repent from that tonight. We need to get cleansed from that tonight. Okay, okay, so Curdy Boy here, Curdy Boy is laying out the fact that, oh no, some guys, some prophets out there got it wrong. Like, I'm not going to say it was a part of any of that stuff there, but, you know, 
Some people got it wrong, and look what the church did. I just need a reason to throw the word cancel culture in there because it's a buzzword. And plus, I do love how he tries to pepper in some scripture about how we're supposed to protect the prophets. But also, I don't know, I think Jesus also talks about, mm, take heed that no man deceive you. Jesus talked about false prophets and false teachers. Yeah, yeah. That's not a blanket statement if you're ever like, I'm a prophet, don't stone me, don't cancel me. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. But, but it is good to know because Kurt really had nothing to do any of this stuff last year, right? All this false prophecy, Kurt had nothing to do with it back in 2021. Oh, wait, let's listen to 2021 Kurt. Son of man, do you think that I am going to allow my prophets who prophesied Trump's second term and prophesied what all this goodness coming to this nation to be mocked by a mass media manipulation? The Lord says, no, I shall not. For my namesake, I shall protect my word. I shall protect my people. I shall protect my prophets from this evil destruction. For I shall pull back the veil and I shall reveal that which is done in darkness. For they who shift the votes and move the boxes around, those who raise the dead and the dead vote, I will expose them, says the Lord, for they may be tricking men but they shall not trick me, says the Lord. And the Lord says, son of man, prophesy unto Wisconsin that it will go red for Trump. Prophesy unto Michigan that it will go red for Trump. Prophesy unto Pennsylvania that it goes red for Trump. Prophesy unto North Carolina that it goes red for Trump. Prophesy unto Georgia that it goes red for Trump. Prophesy unto Nevada that it goes red, red for Trump. Prophesy for recounts in places where the corruption is there. Prophesy that the media will cancel the assignment to, to call the election. Oof, somebody cancel this guy. He's a false prophet. Or get the stones. I'm joking about the stones, but seriously. <laughs> uh, irony is dead. And when God speaks through prophecy, why does he often sound like a weird son of man? I shall prophesy this. Like, why does he still talk in King James English? For that reason alone, do I doubt <laughs> do I doubt it's God speaking? <laughs> Every time I hear these guys just rip into King James English and go after this, thus saith the Lord crap. Mm -mm, mm -mm. If you just think about it, think about it. That's not how God would talk nowadays. I just don't think God stopped in like the Middle Ages and he was like, yes, language done. Done. I don't know. But you know what's not done? Oh. The last word, the last word is insane preacher, Greg Locke. Last word, Greg Locke. Say it, brother. And now everybody says, oh, Greg Locke, you need to preach like Jesus. Well, if I preach like Jesus, you wouldn't watch any of my live videos. 